Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, June 3rd, and it will begin airing on Sunday, June 5th, 2022. My name is Reese Robinson, and I'm on air today with my co-hosts, Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. How's it going, ladies? Uh, Yeah, it's going all right. The weather's warm out here. Not quite too warm yet. Trying to enjoy it while I can before I go into hiding for the summer. (laughs) All right. Does it get super hot out there? Yeah, but I've heard I've heard that like people think it's really hot here, but those are people who haven't spent the summer in New York where it's also like a sweltering swamp. So, yeah. So we'll see. I'll report back. (laughs) Yeah, I'm doing all right. It's the first uh, Friday of Black Music Month. It's also the first uh, Friday of Pride Month. Yes, it is. Happy Pride, everybody. Happy Pride. Absolutely. And over here in Oceanside, California, it's a little gloomy, but let's hope that the marine layer passes and we can get some sun. Yeah, and it's 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 decent in New York. I'm, I'm not complaining. Like, I'm a summer person. Like, this is my season, so yeah. I'm enjoying it. You can it. have it. it hasn't been too bad to me. <laughs> Emily's like, It's all that. yours. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. You see how I'm over here? <laughs> I'm soaking it up. <laughs> I had to apologize to one of my friends because we were both out and I was like, oh, I was just like loving it. And she was like cowering in the shadows. Like, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah. I'm more of a spring fall type of person. Like give me a little, a little crisp, Mm -hmm. a little crisp, right? Mm -hmm. But a lot of sun, Mm -hmm. a little crisp, but a lot of sun. That's what Mm -hmm. I like. Yeah. Cool. All right. So today's episode will consist of our local news story, which is about an indictment in the killing of a Queens delivery man. Our national news story is about the anti-vaccine movement in the U.S. In world news, we're talking about massive human rights violations in El Salvador. And for good news, we have some information about a bill to increase access to childcare in New York. So we'll go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Jasmine, you're up. Okay, so this is um, the actual incident happened in April, uh, but the recent news is the indictment um, of the person they believe is responsible. Uh, This article was appeared in the New York Times. It was written by Chelsea Rose Marcius. The title is Man Killed Delivery Man After Dispute Over Duck Sauce, Prosecutors Say. Um, So I'm going to read most of it as it is, but I've cut some of it for the sake of time. On a routine April night on a scooter ride away from the Queen's restaurant where he worked making deliveries. Oh, no. How did I do that? Sorry, I also was up like super late. On a routine April night, a man on a scooter rode away from the Queen's restaurant where he worked making deliveries. What the delivery man, Zhiwen Yan, did not know as he made the dinner run was that an angry customer who months earlier had demanded a refund after saying he had not gotten enough duck sauce with his order was watching him leave the restaurant. The man followed Mr. Yang to an intersection in Forest Hills, Queens. Then, as Mr. Yan waited at a stoplight, the man who had been trailing him approached and fired a single fatal shot into his chest. 
The account of what happened that night was described by prosecutors on Thursday, June 2nd, as they announced the indictment of Glenn Hirsch, 51, of Briarwood, Queens, on murder and other charges in Mr. Young's death. Mr. Hirsch pleaded not guilty at an arraignment on Thursday in Queens Supreme Court. He was ordered held until a court date later this month. He faces up to life in prison if convicted. A petty dispute over a takeout order became an obsessive point of contention for the defendant who began to stalk and harass employees at the restaurant for months, Melinda Katz, the Queens District Attorney, said in a statement on Thursday. Mr. Hirsch's lawyer, Michael D. Horn, said the authorities had arrested the wrong man. Last November, months before the fatal shooting, prosecutors said, Mr. Hirsch had ordered food at Great Wall, the Queens Boulevard restaurant where Mr. Young worked for over 20 years. Mr. Hirsch was furious that night about not getting enough duck sauce package, packets with his dinner, prosecutors said. Even after workers handed him extra sauce, he insisted on a refund. One worker refused and Mr. Hirsch called the police. An employee told officers that the restaurant could not take back orders because of concerns about the coronavirus, prosecutors said. Mr. Hirsch then stormed out of the restaurant according to a news release from the district attorney's office. For weeks after the episode, Mr. Hirsch continued to unleash his anger on Great Wall employees, damaging one employee's vehicle with a knife in December, prosecutors said. When Mr. Yan and his co-workers confronted Mr. Hirsch, prosecutors said he told them, I have a gun and be careful. This is the last time I'm going to tell you. About a month after that altercation, Mr. Hirsch showed up at the restaurant again and pointed a gun at an employee who was shoveling snow, prosecutors said. How's your car? Remember me, Mr. Hirsch said, according to the news release. I will kill your entire family. The worker rushed into the restaurant and called the police. When he went back outside, Mr. Hirsch was gone, but the tires on a worker's car had been slashed, prosecutors said. On April 30th, Mr. Hirsch dropped his wife off at work and then headed toward the restaurant, prosecutors said. He drove past it seven times between 7.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m. before spotting Mr. Yan, 45, as he left to make the delivery. Mr. Hirsch followed Mr. Yan to an address on 108th Street where he dropped off an order, then to 67th Drive and 108th Street where he then fatally shot him, prosecutors said. Mr. Yan was taken to Elmhurst Hospital Center where he was pronounced dead. Mr. Yan, a father of three children, immigrated to the United States from Fuzhou, a city in southeastern China. He often delivered lunch orders to students at Queller Prep Tutoring and Educational Services Incorporated, the owner, Francis Queller, said. Since her husband's death, Miss Eva Zhao has focused on helping the, the couple's children cope with the loss of their father, said Jennifer Wu, a lawyer who was representing the family. One of Miss Zhao's most pressing concerns has been how to invest the money friends and strangers have donated. She wants to use the money to help fund her two-year-old daughter's education. Um, so that's the story. Um, very, very sad. Um, I watched the video of um, the owner of the restaurant being interviewed, describing, you know, that this person 
over duck sauce, like was assaulting them, calling them racist names. Like, and this campaign lasted for months and months. And to see that this appears to be how it ended is just really senseless and sad. Um, that's extremely sad. I hadn't heard this story. Um, listening to you, you know, recount the news about the story it's it's I'm hearing a lot of um well it's it's remind it's like this thing where that sort of harassment and that sort of um stalking like often leads to escalation and uh and it did here in this case like you know fatal a fatal escalation and you know was there was there a reason like it there was you know it wasn't some sort of restraining order like wasn't some sort of like police action taken prior to it escalating to this point not that you necessarily have the answer any of us do but it's like you know it's like this happens a lot to women right like people don't take their complaints seriously that there's you know something stalking them their ex isn't leaving them alone they got the police involved they called Mm -hmm. you know this was known that this was happening Mm -hmm. and you know it's i agree with you it's it's similar you know we haven't talked about uvalde yet but that shooter had a history of threatening girls explicitly Mm -hmm. at his job and then eventually this is what happened and Mm -hmm. it's the same thing with this from november to april is Mm -hmm. a lot of time and to have been there's cameras you can see footage of people leaving the restaurant they let the police know this was happening they were aware of this person Mm -hmm. and it still happened it's Mm -hmm. really what are you supposed to do like live in a chestnut even if you did people would fucking find ways you know like crack it open exactly like it's it's awful when you express what you're dealing with and people don't take it serious it's more sad when people just kind of I feel like we're just in this really agitated state of being um right now and everybody's on edge so anything is fucking possible but you know it's really sad that somebody had to lose their life over something that is so pointless um especially when they obviously shared what they were going through you know but it's almost like you know that that shit doesn't even matter anymore like I feel like you know, you said the police were involved. A lot of times when the police is involved, it's not a good outcome, unfortunately. But this is really sad that somebody had to lose their life over something so meaningless. It's never, never good. Yeah. And it's, you know, there's so many different like overlapping layers of it because, you know, this in this particular instance, like the victim and the perpetrator were not of the same race. And like there was a race, a racist element of the things he was saying to the people in the restaurant. There's also the dynamics of them being like in the service industry and the way people, you know, downplay or like don't take seriously things that happen. Like when you're in those positions, like people feel like they can unleash on you. Mm-hmm. And I it's do, really, it's scary. It's really scary. And I think another layer to that too is I'm hearing like a layer of undiagnosed, un like mental illness, right? Like to, to escalate, like to, to, to focus in with that and which isn't to say that, you know, it means that they're they're this person is not responsible, right? He's like, it doesn't mean like crazy defense, et cetera, but it's like, there's just a lot of layers here and mental illness and racism aren't exclusionary, right? Like things like that. Like, um, but this person clearly had, has had like severe 
anger issues. Like I, what, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a, a doctor, but like, this is not normal. Um, the, the, the trigger so small to lead to some, to like a fixation like that. Like, you know, it's, it's, I mean, terif- we, yeah. we don't know. It's like, yeah, it's we don't terif- know like yeah, the true. person's like what his medical history was, but you know, there's, there, I do feel like there is a problem in this country, obviously, with like mental health not being taken seriously. Mm-hmm. But I would say like there's a huge, like a bigger cultural issue with like men in particular mm-hmm. feeling yeah. entitled like to act out against others. Like we don't know. I don't know. He maybe had a history in his household of how he was treating people or Mm-hmm. just feeling like entitled to behave this way and then with the pandemic like Reese was mentioning I think that you're seeing more of this like manifesting of like bottled up like anger and just you know this willingness to just lash out it's it's a lot going on and I don't have y'all heard about this um supreme court case that's coming down that might make handgun ownership even more widely accessible in New York state is it the local Supreme Court or the federal Supreme Court? No, it's the U.S. Supreme the, Court. Oh, Jesus. I think I read a little something about not. it. I haven't really dug in yet, but I did yeah. read a little something about that. Right. And that's, that, that, that really shows you a sign of the times, right? Like, Yeah. It really does. And it's like to what Emily was saying, like we in New York State, we have very strict rules about who can have like a concealed carry gun legally. And there's a lot of issues with it because it's like stuff with like, oh, you have to be of good moral character. And it's like, who decides that? You know, because if this is a person that, you know, had a hair trigger temper, like why was he allowed to have one? Like who was investigating that? I can't believe that's even still a qualification. Like, first of all, morality at this point is completely subjective. Okay. I'm just saying like morality, morality should not be a, I mean, I guess in, in theory, at one point, maybe, but the, the semantics of morality being a qualifier of somebody ha- possessing a firearm is absurd to me. Like, morality is subjective. And depending on whoever is the judge and the jury, <laughs> morality could mean anything at this point. Morality could be fucking being Black in America and feeling like you need to be safe. You know what I'm saying? It is difficult because I'm I'm definitely not someone who's a fan of guns and I'm the proliferation of weapons in this country I think is the common denominator with all the death that you see because whether it's someone taking their own life, someone having an accident, someone having a manifesto and going on a mission to try to liquidate certain groups or like just having interpersonal beef that escalates the common denominator in like the death is the fact that there's a weapon, but it is a shame that when you do have the controls, like the gun laws, like the way that they'll be enforced will be so strongly like biased. Exactly. It's like the same people still have access to the weapon. Like it's, it's just hard to know, like, cause it's such a quagmire, like, yeah. what you would even do at this point because you want more gun control but then what that leads to is the same usual suspects get overly harassed and over you know disproportionately denied the ability to get something meanwhile or the usual suspects become every fucking body else like it's been yeah it's just i don't know 
I just prayers up for his family. It's really, really sad. Um, I'm sure that they have a GoFundMe, and if I find it and it's legitimate, like I'll put it up on our show page. But absolutely, prayers up for his family um, and all those affected by this horrific killing. We're going to go ahead and take our first music break for today. This is a nice jazz track called Why Not? And it's by Kiefer, Luke Titus, and Para Christalgic. There we go. Para Christalgic. We'll be right back. <laughs> You can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now Emily's up with our national news story. All righty. So for this week's national story, I'm going to read parts of a piece that was published by the New York Times on May 25th. Uh, It was written by Moises Velasquez Manoff, and it's titled The Anti-Vaccine Movement's New Frontier. A wave of parents has been radicalized by COVID-era misinformation to reject ordinary child immunizations with potentially lethal consequences. Um, And this is like a very long, I guess the word's expose, I'm not really sure. It's like a very long um, 
deep dive into this world. And I just, I pulled out some chunks that I thought would be like the most interesting, but definitely check it out if you want to know more. Um, The article explains, quote, the mother of four brought her children ranging in age from grade school to high school to the doctor's office last summer for their annual checkup. When their pediatrician, Robert Froelke, Froelke said it was time for shots and several boosters and then mentioned the COVID vaccine, her reaction stunned him. I'm not going to kill my children, Froelke recalls her saying as she began to shake and weep. He ushered her out of the examination room away from her children and tried to calm her. We're just trying to help your kids be healthy, he told her, but he didn't press the issue. He sensed that she wasn't persuadable at that moment, and he didn't want to drive her away from his practice altogether. That really shook me up, he says. In his 14 years of practicing medicine in Littleton, a Denver suburb, Froelke uh, has seen parents decline their children's uh, vaccines for the sake of a more natural lifestyle. He had also seen parents worried about overstressing their children's bodies request that vaccinations be given on different schedules. But until the past nine months or so, he had rarely seen parents with already vaccinated children refuse additional vaccines. Some of these parents were even rejecting boosters of the same shots that un- that they unquestioning- unquestioningly accepted for their children just a few years earlier. Folke uh, estimates that he was, has faced around 20 such parents, maybe more. A father who said he had done his own research and sent Froelke a ream of printouts from right-wing and anti-vaccine websites to prove it. A mother who was a nurse who adamantly refused routine boosters for a kindergarten-aged daughter. And then later, when the child got sick with COVID-19, asked Froelke without success to give the deworming drug ivermectin to her. The overall number of these new doubters in his practice hasn't been large, he says, but considering it was almost zero before the pandemic, the trend is both notable and worrisome. These parents are not uneducated, Froelke told me. Some of them are literally rocket scientists at the nearby Lockheed Martin facility. What has happened, he suspects, is that rampant misinformation related to the COVID-19 vaccines and the fact that pundits like Tucker Carlson on Fox News have devoted a lot of time to bashing them. Uh, Among other untruths, he has suggested that the vaccines make people more likely to contract COVID-19, not less, had begun to taint some people's view of long-established vaccines. I think we're going to see more of this, more spillover of persons who had previously vaccinated their children and who are now not going to vaccinate, he says. Such doubt has been accompanied by and may have been augmented by an erosion of confidence in medical expertise generally. We used to be able to persuade more with our background and training, he says. Parents trusted his advice because he was a doctor. Now when he cites the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention or other official guidelines, uh, skeptical parents sometimes accuse him of being a shill, of having been lied to and taken in by some vast conspiracy. It's very concerning, this lack of trust, he says. Southern California, Savannah, Georgia, rural Alabama, Houston. Pediatricians in all these places told, it says me, but that's the author of the article writing in the first person, um, about similar experiences with parents pushing back against routine vaccines. Jason Turk, a pediatrician in Keller, Texas, called the phenomenon the other contagion, a new hesitation or refusal by parents to take vaccines they previously accepted. Eric Ball, a pediatrician in Orange County, California, said the number of children in his practice who were fully vaccinated had declined by 5% compared with before the pandemic. He has been hearing more questions about established childhood vaccines. 
How long has it been around? Why give it? From parents who vaccinated older children without much hesitation, but are now confronted with the prospect of vaccinating babies born during the pandemic. Some of these parents end up holding off, he says, telling them, telling him they want to do more research. There's a lot of misinformation about the COVID vaccines, and it just bleeds into everything, he says. These fake stories and bad information get stuck in people's heads, and they understandably get confused. Another, uh, in another part of Orange County, Kate Williamson reports seeing more reluctance in her pediatric uh, practice. Though she notes that vaccine hesitancy is not new, doctors in relatively conservative Orange County in particular have weathered earlier anti-vaccine flare-ups, the politicization of the issue seems different this time. I have this worry in the back of my mind that we're up against something that we have never seen before, she says. To have something that could be anti-science as part of a political identity and culture is very concerning. Quote, if this dynamic continues, it could threaten decades of progress in controlling infectious disease. The CDC has registered a one percentage point drop in childhood vaccines since the pandemic began. 94% of American kindergartners were up to date with their vaccines in the 2020-2021 school year, compared with 95% the previous year. Meaning not only have vaccinations in this age group fallen below the CDC's 95% target, but also some 35,000 fewer children were vaccinated that year. Ball, Williamson, and Spitalnik estimate that the volume of skeptical questions has increased by 5 to 10% over the past three years. It doesn't sound big, Spitalnik says, but it's an awful lot of babies. That could also get you below herd immunity. Uh, quote, political affiliation may not be an, maybe an, may be an important factor behind what Frolke and others are experiencing. Though his practice is in Jefferson County, which leans progressive, he sees many patients from nearby Douglas County, which is more conservative. It went for Trump by more than seven points in 2020. And Frolke thinks he may be seeing more newly minted naysayers than some of his peers. A couple of other pediatricians I spoke to in Denver had not seen more doubters, simply, became, simply because more of his patients lean to the right politically. Uh, David Broniatowski, an associate professor at George Washington University who studies online misinformation, says that because COVID vaccines have become so charged politically, one of the largest groups in the country, white conservatives, may have also become the most susceptible to skullduggery swirling around vaccines. To my mind, they are a vulnerable audience that is targeted for manipulation by a pretty small number of, of grifters, Broniatowski. Towski says, it's a crazy scenario where a dominant demographic in the country may be the most vulnerable population right now. Uh, in 2019, even before the pandemic struck, the World Health Organization listed growing vaccine hesitancy as one of its top 10 threats to global health. WHO officials often refer to the contagion of misinformation that foments vaccine hesitancy as an infodemic. Mountains of incorrect and sometimes flagrantly conspiratorial information about diseases that leads people to avoid life-saving medical practices, like the vaccines used to fight them. Now the pandemic has given anti-vaccine advocates an opportunity to field test a variety of messages and find new recruits. And one message in particular seems to be resonating widely. Vaccines and vaccine mandates are an attack on freedom. Although it is convenient to refer to anti-vaccine efforts as a movement, there really is no single movement. Rather, disparate interests in, are converging on a single issue. Many reject the anti-vaccine label altogether, claiming instead to be pro-vaccine choice, pro-safe vaccine, or vaccine skeptical. For some, there may be a way to make money by pushing the notion that vaccines are dangerous. 
For politicians and commentators, the tyranny and commentators, the tyranny of vaccine mandates can offer a political rallying cry. For states like Russia, which has disseminated both pro and anti-vaccine messages on social media in other countries, vaccines are another target for for informational warfare. For conspiracy-minded private citizens, vaccine misinformation can be a way to make sense of the world, even if the explanations they arrive at are often nightmarish and bizarre. The process of swaying people with messaging that questions vaccines is how disinformation, deliberately fabricated falsehoods and half-truths, becomes misinformation or incorrect information passed along unwittingly. Motivated by the best intentions, these people nonetheless end up amplifying the contagion and the damaging impact of half-truths and distortions. This is a deadly movement, Peter Hotez told me. With things like terrorism and nuclear proliferation, we have lots of infrastructure. For this, we don't have anything. In 1904, the U.S. Supreme Court heard the case of Henning Jacobson, a Swedish immigrant and minister who refused to comply with a vaccine mandate in Massachusetts. He had been fined $5, equivalent to about $170 today. At issue was how much control states had over residents' bodies. It was part of a fight that stretches back to the very first vaccine mandates in the 19th century and the backlashes they inspired. The arguments against mandatory vaccination then were similar to those we hear now. Vaccines are dangerous, they kill children, they infringe on personal freedom. The remarkable consistency of these claims over time is due in part to the fact that vaccines raise legitimately complicated and enduring questions about how much autonomy any individual should surrender for the greater good and how to apportion risk between individuals and society. In Jacobson's case, the court ultimately ruled that states did have the power to mandate vaccination when public safety was threatened, but not if individuals could show that the vaccine would harm or kill them. Uh, Quote, today, childhood infections that were often fatal or disabling as recently as the mid-20th century, uh, diphtheria, rubella, whooping cough, measles, mumps, polio, very rarely cause deaths in the developed world. Such public health successes are why some scientists regard vaccines as the single greatest medical advance in human history. But that very triumph has, paradoxically, hindered the effort to counter vaccine skepticism. In the developed world, only a small portion of the population has seen the death and suffering caused by the diseases of eras past. Vaccines, in the minds of many, have come to pose a greater threat than the diseases that they have come that they have helped nearly vanquish. In a sense, vaccines have become victims of their own success. And there's a lot more interesting stuff in there. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop reading from the article. Um, it goes on to um, talk about like specific ways that misinformation is spread on social media, how it's actually like a lot fewer, it's probably like, um, it's probably like only a handful of sources that are actually like creating this like giant splash. Um, you know, and, uh, and then how a lot of them at the end of the day, literally just make money off of it. You know, and again, like I'm a big fan of just like follow the money. Like if someone's making money off an issue, that's why like, like, same with the gun lobby, like the, the gun issue we have in this country, right? Like the gun manufacturers in this lobby in this country is out of control. And that's, and that's part of why the shit is crazy. But yeah. Interesting story. Something that stood out for me, um, a couple of things like how pre COVID, you know, vaccines, I think you said a line about, one of the single most uh successful advancements in science or something like mm-hmm. that 
mm-hmm. um, which I kind of agree with to an extent, uh, mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, the world as a whole and, and over time how vaccines have helped to eliminate like massive amounts of death in people and in populations and stuff like that. But it's really hard to feel that way today, I feel like. And I'm not sure if that's because of the influence of the anti-vax movement or if that's because of the money. As you just said, when you follow it in the way, you know, the COVID stuff has been withheld um, by certain people and, you know, certain countries never received the doses that were necessary to help them. So it's a a really complex issue, I think. But in the same context, um, when you follow the money, as you said, it's like, are they really helping us or hindering us? Or is this more of a control mechanism um, at this point in life? You know, that's really interesting. Yeah. I think I hear what you're saying. I think that I think I think in terms of scientific, like like what you could argue that it's not like humanity's greatest success, right? Because of those political issues involved that you're mentioning and like, you know, and um, and humanitarian issues involved with that. But I think on a scientific level, like it's it's still pretty incredible that we have the ability to eliminate diseases in this way, even if in reality it's not happening like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would I would say that um I think that there's some echoes between this and also what we saw happening with the formula shortage. People were making these very ridiculous sweeping statements about like well everyone should just breastfeed when they have no comprehension of like what it used to be like before there was widely available mm-hmm. baby formula that would make sure that your child had what it needed to just survive past the first year. Like Mm -hmm. people don't know what that's like, you know, especially not in the Western quote unquote developed world. And it it is like, we don't have that um, societal memory of that. And also um, to Reese's point, it's like (sighs) conspiracy theories and stuff are obviously incredibly dangerous. But one of the reasons why they're so powerful is that it isn't false to believe that there are like nefarious forces that like don't have your best interests at heart that like Mm -hmm. profit off of suffering. That's true. And the way that that can then get exploited and twisted around is what's really scary because we do see that like there is a problem with like a monopoly about like who is able to produce the formula. Like why was that allowed to happen? It's an issue. Right. But then you have people are like vulnerable to feed into like these more like wackadoodle ideas that don't make any sense at all. But then what's happening around them seems to be like proof of that. Like if they see like people are profiteering off of medicine, which like the pharmaceutical industry, which is bad, that can then feed into like not believing in the science or questioning the science. So it's it's really like a a Pandora's box of like this creepy feedback loop, like having a short historical memory. You have, you know, all this dark money like feeding into the misinformation. And then you also have people that, you know, they should be looking out for the public health interests, but they'll let money get in the way of that. And then, you know, you you know what I'm trying to say? It's like Absolutely. They feed into each yeah. other. And it's like it it's like people feel more justified in believing like wackadoodle claims because you have people that are like abdicating their responsibility to like properly educate people about history to 
properly, you know, make sure these things are available and like easy to understand. Like it's, it's a frightening, frightening mess and it's, it's growing. It's scary. Great discussion, ladies. Definitely. Um, a lot of thoughts to consider here. And, you know, I like the comment that you said about, um, uh, the way the conspiracy theories, you know, conspiracy theories, in my opinion, are formed by a little bit of truth, you know, like by a little bit of truth. It didn't just come from no fucking where. That's that's. I mean, that's how where I'm at in life. It's so powerful because they'll take something that's like kind of true, half true, a piece of true, and then it gets wrapped up in all. It like snowballs into this complete other thing, and that's why it's so hard to unroot it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that story, Emily. Uh, what do you guys think? Uh, check out our social media pages and give us some feedback. We're going to go ahead and take our next music break. <laughs> this story actually just fueled me to change the song. So this next track is a throwback classic. This is the OJs with For the Love of Money. We'll be right back.
Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. So our world news story today comes from an article on CNN.com. The title of the author is Salvadorian Authorities Are Committing Massive Human Rights Violations with Nearly 2% of the Country Detained, Amnesty Alleges. The author of the article is Merlin Delsid and Carol Suarez and Kara Fox. Salvadorian authorities have committed massive human rights violations, including thousands of arbitrary detentions and violations of due process, torture, and ill treatment, according to a new report from Amnesty International. The report released Thursday found that since March, nearly 2% of the country has been detained, with at least 18 people having died in state custody. On March 27th, the country was placed under a state of emergency to tackle an uptick in homicides driven by gangs Barrio 18 and MS-13. The country's legislative assembly passed the measure at the request of President Naib Bukel after an upsurge in violence left 62 dead in a single day. It has been extended twice. More than 36,000 people have been detained since, according to a Tuesday statement from the Salvadorian government. Salvadoran authorities are committing widespread and flagrant violations of human rights and criminalizing people living in poverty on the pretext of punishing gangs. Erica Guerra Rosas, America's director of Amnesty International, said, instead of offering an effective response to dramatic violence caused by gangs and the historic public security challenges facing the country, they are subjecting the Salvadorian people to a tragedy, she added. In what appeared to be a preemptive response to the report, which had been distributed to the media on embargo on Wednesday night, Bukel said these organizations should also worry about the victims of gangs. Hopefully, just as they care because we have captured criminals, they would care about our children, about our elderly, about our working people, about the innocent Salvadorians who have suffered at the hands of those same criminals, he said during a speech before the Legislative Assembly. According to Amnesty, at least 1,190 children have been detained and held in youth facilities, and many of them charged with being a member of an illegal group or terrorist organization. In one case, two cousins, aged 14 and 15, were detained in April while playing outside their house just outside of San Salvador. The families told Amnesty that police accused them of looking like criminals and told their mothers they would spend 30 years behind bars, according to the report. Since, the mothers have been unable to communicate with their children and are unclear about the trial they will face, with the public defender assigned to the case barely arguing on behalf of their clients, Amnesty reported. The state of emergency suspends constitutional guarantees, including freedom of association and an alleged offender's right to state-sponsored legal defense in court. It also extends provisional detention from 72 hours to 15 days and allows authorities to intervene in telecommunication without needing a judge's authorization. 
Those in detention face tough circumstances, according to Amnesty, which has documented cases of torture and ill treatment inside the detention centers. Amnesty detailed cases of such alleged abuse in their report. In one instance, a 16-year-old who was arrested in April, April and held for 13 days for being an alleged member of an illegal group was chained to a wall of a detention center where he said he was beaten by police. Later, he was transferred to youth detention center where he was beaten by gang members who said also, who he said also threw a bag of urine at his head. Many of the detainees are being held without due process purely because the authorities view them as having been identified as criminals and the stigmatizing speeches of President Bukel's government because they have tattoos, are accused by a third party of having alleged links to a gang, are related to someone who belonged to a gang, have a previous criminal record of some kind, or simply because they live in an area under gang control, which are precisely the areas with high levels of marginalization and that have historically been abandoned by the state, according to Amnesty. El Salvador has a long history of organized crime groups fighting against security forces and among themselves to control territory and drug routes across Central America. The small Central American country, roughly the size of Massachusetts, led the world for, for the number of homicides related to the size of its population for several years in a row in the 2010s. Bukel, the self-proclaimed world coolest dictator, took office in June 2019 with broad support after promising to stand tough against gang violence, which has rackled El Salvador for decades. In February 2020, Bukel sent armed troops into Congress as he demanded the lawmakers approve his plan to secure a $109 million loan to tackle gang violence. In June, he pulled El Salvador out of an anti-corruption out of an anti-corruption accord backed by the United States. And last September, El Salvador's highest court ruled the president can serve two consecutive terms in office, paving the way for Bukel to run for re-election in 2024. Bukel's hard line remains popular among voters, however, who have lauded an overall decrease in violence to his presidency. That's the end of the article. Um, man this this is this is a lot <laughs> um super super complicated uh when i was in grad school we actually had a uh trip uh my program was a social social science program at liu and we had a trip one of the courses to take us to el salvador and i remember having to do all of this prep about if you ran in contact with one of these gangs what would be the response of the school and the others who were there with you to try to secure your safety. Many people elected to not actually go on the trip just because their families did not feel it was a safe educational opportunity. But the point of the trip was to study uh, NGOs in the country and their impact on the people in the communities. Um, so just a really interesting thing that happened. But this is really sad. There, I mean, 2% of the population. And obviously, there's a lot of racism here. There's a lot of uh, prejudice. Uh, and there's a lot of children that are caught up in this drama. That's the like, that entire story is very um, upsetting. And also, like, legit shocking. I hadn't heard that. Um, I'm surprised it's not a bigger story. Um, what what right? outlet, did you, yeah. what See, outlet did you get that story? CNN. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's crazy. It's terrible. 
and not like obviously this is something happening in El Salvador not to always bring it back to the U.S. but you definitely see echoes of this with some of these gang units and even locally where it's like you are just present on a corner and you're not the right color and then you're in a database that you're in a gang and that can ruin your life and it's really you know you were saying that this dictator like he has a high approval rating like not to sound too like mega brain, but I do feel that there's a lot of people in power who don't want to take any actual steps to try to curb violence because when they allow for the situations that create violence to proliferate and you have a public that is afraid, they're willing to give up their rights. Because like if you allow for the, like apparently like this dictator was against being anti-corruption or like doing things that would actually help to quell like the sources of, you know, the gang violence. And when you have like people that are frightened, like legitimately frightened for good reason that these gangs are out of control, it's easy to make yourself look like the hero because you're roughing people up and rounding people up. And it's it's really disturbing like what people will allow um, and how many freedoms they're willing to give up for, like, the illusion of being kept safe, like, by these types of, like, very aggressive, repressive, and, like, fasc- like fascist, like, policies. Like, that's, like, what you said about those two children. They were just playing outside, and they looked bad, and so now they're locked away forever. Like, and what are they going to be exposed to while they're locked up if they weren't in a gang before they went in there? They might They're not probably going to come choice. out with some, some kind of gang. Now they have a record. Now they probably are around all types of people being abusive or coercing them. It's horrible. Yeah. And the loss of freedoms, as you said, you know, they don't even, they're not even subject to uh, a defense attorney. You know, they, the, the holding time went from 72 hours to 15 days. Anything can happen um, in a situation where it's volatile and obviously there is no sort of procedure. There is no, so it's, it sounds to me like it's just, they're just running rampant, these forces. Um, and the saddest part is once you're in, then what? You know, it, it, it's an unmentionable amount of time that you're subject to this and your family can't do anything about it. You know, I would like to follow this story and see what happens um, in the coming months because, you know, 2% of the population is absurd. Like it's, it's and I'm sure it's it's just going to increase. Yeah, I want to look more into this dictator because he's a relatively young man. So I could see how, you know, you have someone that's somewhat charismatic promising to keep you safe. Like we've seen this story before and how yep. it ends. Like it doesn't end well. So yeah, like definitely interested in learning more. Like how, who is he? Where did he come from? Who, who bred who's him? him? Spot. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's crazy. It's like gangs. You talking about a gang? The, the police can just show up. He, he that is a gang. Shit. You know they showing up just rounding you up because you're broke. Like that's not a gang. You know it, they that's probably the in on it with the time. gangs. Absolutely, absolutely. That's what I was thinking when I read this story. Like, oh yeah. You know, he's connected to someone. Um, he's connected to, to probably many others that have um, given him this power or elected for him to have this position, to have this power. And it's, it's very scary for the people of El Salvador and the children who are caught up in this. Oh, 
all right, y'all. We gonna do good news or what you think? Yeah, I'll I'll read some quick, fast, in a hurry. So okay. hey, it's your girl. It's Jasmine. Jasmine, some good news. Give us some good news, girl. Yay. Hell has frozen over. <laughs> okay, so this is from the Gothamist. It was written written by Gwen Hogan. Package of city council bills aimed to pave way for universal child care. A New York City Council is set to introduce a slate of bills Thursday that aim to create a plan for broad access to more affordable child care for all New York City parents within a five-year span. Council member Julie Menon, who represents the Upper East Side, is sponsoring bills that would, among other measures, create a child care advisory board to oversee the planning and implementation of universal child care with the goal of making it easier to to access for New York City families, regardless of income. The board would be made up of appointees from the mayor's office and the council, as well as officials from the education department, the health department, and the city's administration for children's services. Women are literally being pushed out of the workforce because they can't afford childcare, Menon told Gothamist. The number of parents that I've talked to who left the workforce, not by choice, but because they felt they had to take care of their children is unacceptable. Even with universal pre-K, childcare can be one of the biggest expenses for city families at more than 21,000 a year. That's US dollars. And childcare centers are concentrated in wealthier neighborhoods, leaving parents in large swaths of the city with few options, according to a 2019 report from former city comptroller Scott Stringer's office. Addressing the issue became a main priority for Governor Kathy Hochul and state legislators this year, and New York City has recent, was recently allocated $4 billion over a four-year period in the state budget to put towards child care. Menin argued the bills would create a structure to use that money expeditiously and scale up child care throughout the, ch- the city's child care deserts. Other bills in the package slated for introduction at Thursday, Thursday's council meeting aim to create a registry of child care providers and to make it easier for property owners to open new child care centers. Uh, Mayor Adams, who campaigned in part on improving child care access, didn't immediately return a request for comment on the bills. So, you know, it's nascent. It's not final yet, but I'm happy that um, moves are being made in this direction because it's a massive gender equality issue. Um, these prices for you drop your baby off, it's like they better come back after that day at daycare, like with a college degree, like with what these people are charging, like it's really out of control. So hoping yeah. that this um, has a good outcome in the end. So please follow up with these bills, y'all in the news. Awesome. Thank you for that good news story. That child care is definitely a huge expense on a lot of young parents. They literally work to pay child care and there's not a lot left afterwards. Um to actually live their lives so hopefully this will make a difference all right y'all we did it we made it to the end of another episode of objection to the rule thank you so much for listening you can catch all of our older episodes on radiofreebrooklyn.org or on the radio free brooklyn app or on spotify our final track of the day is another throwback um and one of my favorites this is higher love by kygo and whitney houston we'll see you next week Bye. Bye, y'all. Happy summer. Think about Bye. It. There must be a higher love down in the heart.
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.